Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome, one and all. I'm Reed Smith, that's Chris Boyer, and this is episode number 193. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. (laughs) Nice to be here today. I know you hate it sometimes when I pull out things about the number, but did you know that the number 193 is considered a quote-unquote happy number? Oh boy, what does that even, what does that mean? A happy number is a number that eventually reaches one when replaced with the sum of the squares of each digit. Hold on a second. (laughs) The sum of the squares of each digit. Oh, look at that. Yeah. So you'd have one and then 81 and then nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, now you learned something new today. If you'd like to learn other new things, I've got a suggestion. One would be just stick around for today's episode. But secondly, uh, you could uh, surf over to our website, touchpoint.health. Uh, Not only will you learn and see a little bit more about this show, also named Touchpoint, but all the other shows on the network, like The Exam Room, for example, who just has a great episode out currently on the CARES Act. I won't spoil that, but be sure to go check that out. The Morning Fix, uh, Healthcare Insight for Marketers, Data Point is back for the fall. Lots of great information uh, over there. So go, go check out those shows. Also, while you're there, sign up for the TPS Report, our weekly email, speaking of learning things. Uh, we've got five or six uh, articles in there each Monday that come to your inbox. You can check those out. It's a quick, easy read. So we'll pause for just one second while you go check out the website, come back and uh, listen to today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So today, Reed, we're going to be talking about building fortitude, even resiliency in healthcare. And it's important because if you look at the state of the state right now of hospitals and health systems across the country, it's uh, pretty tough, isn't it? It is. It's an interesting place to be, certainly. You know, I continue to be reminded something will happen, right? And it'll make me think of something that I've done historically previously in my life. Here recently, I've thought of several things and then realized they were all within this pandemic window of like March till now. 
And they seem like forever ago. And so, again, it's just a very odd place to be. We've started our third wave, at least in certain parts of the country, of COVID or coronavirus. The pandemic certainly will move into 2021. We're talking about vaccines and people taking them or not taking them and then flu. And what are they calling it? The flu and COVID? It's the, uh, what is it? The twindemic. Lots going on, right? I mean, obviously not to overshadow, but the election obviously uh, is coming up. There's been with a lot of the racial inequality type conversations back in May. You know, there's a lot going on through the fall. Certainly, I, I don't feel like we're at you know we're, we're in October, but it doesn't feel right to me. You know, so again, everything just feels off. It really does, and uh, you know, it's it's a top of mind. Healthcare is top of mind too. Not only us, right, but to everybody. It's it's front and center in this contentious election and the political environment that we're in. The CARES Act, that's set to expire at the end of the year. And there was a recent study from GuideHouse where they surveyed a number of hospital and health system executives. And four major things that's keeping them up at night. The first, of course, is decreased revenues. 65% of them predicted that there will be financial decreases in their health system of more than 15% in this year. And more than half anticipate it's going to take through 2021 for those volumes to return to the pre-COVID levels. That must be freaking a lot of executives out right now. I think it is. I mean, I think certainly, you know, we've seen some organizations do better than others as far as the rebounding goes. But I think what we'll ultimately see is, you know, that'll kind of flood into the M&A piece, which is actually kind of one of the other points here. It's actually the fourth one they mentioned, but it's partnership opportunities. They, you know, they say that 29% say that the pandemic has increased the likelihood of participating in new partnerships. Because I think people have to get more creative. They got to look for revenue and, and maybe new and, and different areas. Uh, certainly, a lot of those organizations that aren't doing quite as well I probably have to find a new suitor for those capital infusions. And so it could be from a PE type uh, space in the health services world. It could be mergers and acquisitions in more of the health system space, uh, et cetera. Another big trend that they saw, too, is this displaced and disrupted workforce. Only one in five of the executives expect their organizations are going to return to the primarily on-site work arrangements prior to the pandemic. That adds interesting complexity to try to reach out to a workforce where traditionally you had them all coming into a centralized place, even if there were shared services in nature. And then, you know, if you think about too, now with the twindemic coming upon us with the flu and then COVID, the safety and health of their employees is a big thing. And related to that as well is the mental health of their employees because they're just getting worn down from all of this. You know, it's interesting. We probably ought to do a show uh, around this, talking about the remote workforce and the displaced and disrupted workforce. We've been working with a lot of organizations lately, helping them rethink intranet, internal communications, things like that, that historically have been pretty defined. You know, it's like, well, when you log on a computer here, you see the internet. It's like, well, that's super. They're not here anymore. Right. So now what? You know, kind of a deal. So it's interesting. The other one here, the fourth one that they talk about is reimbursement. Uh, only 3% believe federal funding uh, will cover COVID-related costs. I would assume COVID-related costs are high. I'm sure that's a quick Google or something like that, but not a lot of confidence there. Probably just unsure of what reimbursement really looks like on that side. And so that's got to be scary both for the provider and the consumer. 
and what we're painting here is a, a bleak picture, right, of what the world looks like in a hospital or health system. We were reminded of that when we saw actually a recent blog post done by one of your coworkers about developing a way to navigate through these tough times. Yeah, Aaron Campbell, who works uh, with me at Girard, is a uh, patient experience expert. And so a really cool guy, uh, has a lot of experience in that in that space. And he, he wrote a, a recent post called Hope is Not a Strategy. It was uh, actually in the TPS report this past week. He, he really talks about seven ways that you may be inadvertently signaling that your organization's strategies in future are hopeless. <laughs> so you don't, <laughs> you don't want to do that. Plus, yeah, obviously, he talks a little bit about some of the countermeasures that you can you can use to maybe uh, combat that perception. Well, let's talk about those countermeasures, Reed, because I think it's important to, we didn't want to start off the, the episode with a Debbie Downer, right? right. So even though times are tough, there are ways to convey strength to your audience through this crisis. And let's briefly touch on these. Yeah. So the first thing he talks about is the danger that you may actually stop listening and start assuming things, right? Like we're getting pretty far into this. You don't want to make assumptions about what people are thinking, right? Your patients and employees, Aaron talks about, really desire for you to genuinely listen to them. Uh, so open the door to dialogue through like things like pulse surveys, virtual town halls, focus groups, et cetera. We've got this displaced workforce you just talked about. Well, we've got to find new and interesting ways to keep them engaged and to continue to connect with them. And our recent episode about the voice of customer and ways to actually connect with your patients is also very important here. A second piece, he said that while hope is necessary, it shouldn't be your strategy before announcing any kind of like changes or things, because your organizations are going to go through a lot of change. Before you announce those changes, you need to ensure your leadership team knows how to articulate that change to help them fulfill the mission long-term. I think about a health system here in the Twin Cities that just announced they're laying off a large number of nurses and closing down some hospitals in the middle of the pandemic. And one of the things that Aaron suggests is that to proactively address that tension will help people, the audience that you're communicating to, respect your reasoning and willingness to make tough decisions, even if they may disagree with it. Third point that he talks about is the danger of under- underestimating the impact that change may have. And he does use the word unprecedented in here. And he <laughs> does say that he realizes he said that. So anyway, go read the article just, just in and of that. He talks about the need that is, is really important more than ever now that leaders emphasize partnerships, that genuine care about well-being, not only of your employees, but all your stakeholders. Uh, and you can do that through listening, collaborating, you know, really making change manageable by tying it back to your mission, which I think is a great point that he has here. Hopefully, ultimately uh, strengthening your resilience and making sure that the team has uh, really what they need to evolve with it. The fourth point that he brought up the fact that most organizations, they create this steady drip of negative news. And the part of it is, is because they want to minimize overall negative perception. So they'll say, well, well, we'll announce maybe the layoffs here. And then we'll, a few weeks down the road, we'll announce the hospital closings. And then, you know, we'll get into benefit changes, et cetera. He calls that the drip, drip, drip effect, right? Where everything happens one after another. And that actually can negatively reinforce resiliency in your organization. He suggests, which I think is really great, right, is to actually consolidate some of these announcements into major milestones and even contextualize them as part of a larger strategy and a vision. It doesn't get rid of the negative news, but it actually gives some 
context to what's happening. And it takes away from that ongoing dread of like, oh, great, what's going to happen this week? What's going to happen next week? That sort of thing. Number five on the list, uh, you may accidentally... Hopefully not, but you may be accidentally fueling speculation. I've seen this a number of times. It's usually done because uh, not on purpose, but but folks are being vague or communications has lost some of its cadence, if you will. So it's not quite as frequent maybe as it once was. And, and people will start speculating. It increases anxiety, rumors, et cetera. The opportunity here really is, you know, you don't have to pretend or act like everything's fine. Be transparent, be responsible with those communications. And really, it's better to say uh, what you do and don't know rather than to let you know rumors and fear kind of take over, as Aaron points out. If you can't answer it and you don't know the answer, just be truthful about what's what's going on and you know what you're going to do and that kind of thing. Transparency is so important. And it if, if you're not transparent, it can erode the trust that they may have in your organization. The other thing that becomes a big point, which is point number six here, is some organizations emphasize money and they ignore the recognition gap. We all know this, Reed, because we work in healthcare. Money's not usually the primary reason why people get into healthcare. There's a bigger purpose. Right. We want to help. We want to make a difference. We want to care. And he suggests here that change will challenge morale. And sometimes not the best way to strengthen morale, trust and pride is stop focusing on the the financial recognition and start focusing on the recognition that reinforces why they are there in the first place. And he calls that the recognition gap. They say that, that leaders believe they give recognition far more than employees perceive receiving it. So actually that should become one of your top priorities is to show recognition and thanks through tough times. It won't get rid of the fact that you won't be able to, you know, give maybe an annual bonus or pay raise or whatever it may be, but it will certainly help to reinforce the true purpose as to why they're there. And finally, number seven, or the last thing on the list is uh, hopefully that uh, you would not take your community's support and trust for granted. So it's not that big organizations uh, don't have a role in the community, but you know, the, my mind immediately goes to some of these smaller community-based hospitals. The really idea is to try to maintain support as much like your other stakeholders. You know, regular updates, being transparent. You know, talking about what implications or external factors in this case, COVID, have on you as an organization, how they're changing the industry that you work in, what that means for the employees. And maybe most importantly, whether it's this case or anything else, is equipping your employees to really be brand ambassadors and really be able to talk about what's going on and why they trust and want to work there. And obviously you just talked about the mission driven you know, world that they live in. And so I think that's that's really important. All of those are very important for you to, as a leadership team and within your organization, to continue to have that fortitude to get through some of the changes. And the good news is, as an industry, we have tools that, Reed, you and I have been talking about for since we started this podcast, digital tools that can help us to reshape and reform how healthcare is being delivered in a good way to help us, again, build that fortitude for the future. And we will jump into that topic after the break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as 
Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right. So uh, jumping in now, let's talk a little bit about kind of where we go from here. This uh, first article that we're going to kind of rattle through, we've got a couple of them to talk about. First one is from Forbes. It's called uh, Digital Healthcare Leaders, uh, Innovative Approach to the Whole Person Care. <laughs> so um, were we only concerned with part of the person before? I don't know. I laugh about that because it, it seems weird, right? Whole person care. That is something we should be thinking about. But, you know, when you think about organizations that are service line approach, think about service line per service line, sometimes they don't. But they say here, right, the article kicks off by saying, in response to the pandemic, healthcare consumers are now seeking out digital health solutions at a much higher rate and touch points to connect with their care team. And they, we've shifted that expectation now that care can be delivered in part digitally. And that could be through like, you know, caregivers trying to treat their patients at home with remote patient monitoring or telehealth, telemedicine, those sorts of things. And the safety around digital healthcare technologies to minimize the risk of exposure to the coronavirus while addressing health concerns in a timely manner. The article puts forth some ideas about how you could apply digital healthcare technologies to that whole person care. Absolutely. The first thing they talk about is that providers can increase access to larger care teams beyond the physician, nurse, dietitian, counselor, behavioral health specialist, pharmacist, etc. If you think about it, providers have that opportunity to then kind of bring in these ancillary pieces, you know, especially maybe not so much nurses, but I think the call out around dietitians, certainly the counselor piece, behavioral health, you know, really can be done through technologies. Yeah. And I've seen that happen to a certain extent, even with communicating with my doctor through the patient portal, the much maligned patient portal. But mm. still, you know, I actually had a question about a particular type of uh, test that I should take. And I actually sent a message to my doctor through the patient portal. And, and actually, their, her nursing staff reached out to me. And I actually began a dialogue with that nursing staff. I didn't even think anything about it, but because she was answering my questions, you know, and that's a lot different than showing up at the doctor's office and expecting to talk to the doctor exclusively for 10 to 15 minutes, right? That's right. Another thing too, they say here is that digital and digital healthcare technologies in particular uh, allow you to consult with patients who are medium to low risk, as opposed to those that are maybe high at risk. And, you know, we've talked about this through telehealth and all that, but the treatment of these non-emergent conditions are truly critical. And if done right, if using digital technology in the right way, care providers can identify those who may be appropriate for in-person evaluation and then refer patients to an acute setting as necessary. But then in the other case, when you maybe just need to have an intervention, suggest digital as a way to connect with them and reach out to them. And that's a low impact, low, low time frame, and probably much more costlier delivery of a solution, right? Yeah, and it couples pretty nicely with another one they point out here about providers' role in closing the gap uh, around transportation barriers. Specifically, transportation barriers as it relates to you know primary care visits, uh, even mental health, et cetera. So again, telehealth, virtual care, that kind of thing obviously is going to fit into this space, but you know, we, we've got an opportunity certainly. 
And then the fourth thing that they actually brought up here, which is very interesting to me, and you and I have talked about this before and runs a kind of a, a very fuzzy line, but being able to extend care to wellness and lifestyle issues. We all know we need to do it. We need to be able to have our doctors become more involved in the things that we do that are maybe not medically related in order to stay healthy. That could be related to the food choices we have, maybe the serving size or the hygiene that we have. It could even go into things like behavioral health therapy, pet therapy, a variety of different things, connected with your Fitbit, et cetera. All of those things become very important and digital healthcare technologies can help supply a channel to start to do those sorts of things. Before we get to our interview today, we've got one more article to kind of touch on from the Harvard Business Review. Uh, they've got four steps. So this is where we kind of move into the action-oriented piece of it. The four steps of digitalize healthcare for the long term. Digitalize healthcare. D- digitalize. Is that a word? Is that a real <laughs> word? I don't know. Um, I've never heard it said that way. But um, yeah, they say here, though, that this is based on a thought leadership paper recently published by Siemens Healthineers, which examines the digitalization of healthcare. And the focus of the paper is the adoption of digital technologies in the healthcare sector in areas around consumer engagement, care coordination, improvements in remote work capabilities, and even the expansion of the use of telemedicine. That's all of it, just about, right? I mean, you're talking about engagement, coordination, remote work capabilities, or I guess collaboration, maybe. Um, if you kind of dive into, and they talk about the fact that this will continue to grow, certainly, you know, after COVID has waned, which I guess COVID will wane at some point. COVID will wane. <laughs> Is that a song? COVID will wane. Is that a song? I think it should be a song. I think you should create that now. So, yeah. But they talk about four steps to building digital enterprise sustainability. So the first, the first one they talk about is managing data as a strategic asset. Man, that is such a great way to say that. It is a great way to say that a strategic asset. But I mean, this, this is about rigorous and ongoing integration of data across all the sources that we've talked about before Reed wearables, imaging, diagnostics, genetics, social determinants, and payers. Yeah. yeah, That's a great first step. But sometimes that first step is the hardest step to take, if you think about it. Yeah, it's a mindset in a lot of cases. I mean, there's action to this, certainly, right? Like going actually getting this information. But the idea that you're going to manage it as a strategic asset or even label it a strategic asset is a little bit of a cultural or mindset. So that's step one. The second step is empowering data-driven decisions. Okay, once you have all the data, then it's conceivable that data and data analysis could help to identify, prevent, and contain future pandemics even. It certainly will help you diagnose where there may be changes to your organization, where there are improvements. If you could start to use data as a way to drive your decisions, and we're talking about true data here now, right? Not anecdotal data, true data here to make those decisions. It can help you improve and basically infuse digital and digital healthcare as part of your your path towards resiliency. Third on the list, connecting care teams and patients. So again, we've talked an awful lot about this virtual care telehealth type stuff, but they say this includes home monitoring, 
telehealth or teleconsultation type technology. Another one, which we really haven't talked a lot about, uh, but is in, in, I've seen this term more and more. We actually have a client in this space, which is probably why I've seen it, but delivering hospital quality care at home or hospital at home type scenarios. This will also help patients gain more transparency, they say, into their own care and actually become a more active participant. I could see that. And I myself feel that when I start to interact with digital healthcare tools that actually are bringing value to my health, I become much more engaged, right? Even past the the patient portal uh, anecdote I gave earlier. The last and probably the most important thing is, again, evolution. This is step four. Step four of this potential process that they're referring to is to build a learning health system. Transforming institutions to true learning health systems, they say, requires leadership buy-in with collective targets, aligned incentives, and an organizational-wide commitment to transformation. But really, moving towards that approach, I, that's what they're, the Harvard Business Review is suggesting as being what the future state of health care will look like, is where we have these learning health systems that constantly change and shift depending on the factors that are going on in the world, not being reactive to things like, for example, the pandemic. Well, let's uh, let's turn our attention to today's interview. Paul Griffiths from Proficient, talking a little bit about revenue resilience, which is an interesting uh, topic. We mentioned that uh, back in the first of the podcast is one of the things that hospitals and healthcare systems, as far as answering on the survey, you were most concerned about was decreasing revenues. They have a number of commitments around revenue resiliency. He he digs into two of the ways that digital can be used to support these. So let's give that a listen, and then we'll be back to close up the show afterwards. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to finally have Paul Griffiths join the show. Paul, I'm surprised that you haven't been on our a podcast before. Well, I think my engraved invitation, you know, got lost somehow in the mail this year. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised too, but uh, but I guess I, I'll exchange my umbrage for, for a celebration that we've we're finally talking. Well, it was remiss on our part, but you know, we do have a very meaty topic to dig into today and I'm excited to get into that. But before we do, there may be some people, very few people that are listening in that may not know you. So would you mind sharing a little bit of your background and, and what you're doing today? Sure. So my name again is Paul Griffiths. I helped start and run a business for about 16 years. Uh, the company was called MedTouch. We joined Proficient at the beginning of 2020. So we took all of our focus that had historically been on hospitals and health plans and thinking about that digital patient journey and how to think about the right solution and then build that right solution and join with Proficient, which is a a really global leader in digital transformation and, and IT services. So I'm now in charge of the Digital Healthcare Solutions Group, which is really imagining and envisioning and help building the kind of future of what good consumer healthcare engagement looks like. And having MedTouch be part of Proficient has uh, has been really great for us and great for our clients this year. 
And, you know, looking back at this, the 2020 year, it's been through some dramatic changes. And one thing that, you know, the the pandemic that we are all still undergoing and going through is certainly driving organizations, health systems to really think about their digital investments and how they approach digital transformations. We have certainly seen five years of digital transformation in in five months uh, this year. And I, I think I hesitate to say there's any silver lining because obviously this pandemic is incredibly destructive and, and healthcare is on the front lines of it. That said, the way that the industry has responded has been galvanizing around the idea that, that maybe old models of care and old ways of doing things can be changed uh, and ideas can be challenged. And I think out of necessity, so many healthcare systems have had to take a leap and they have found their patients and their staff have been willing to kind of go on that journey. So I know a number of, you know, a number of clinicians who, who feel like what was awakened in them this year was really this idea that the care that we deliver matters. And it felt like, you know, the severity of the situation we were going through, everyone was at least like, okay, we got to figure out how to survive in this. And then a lot of my my research this year is, is thinking about what the digital healthcare you know, transformation looks like, trying to understand how consumers are adapting and how healthcare systems are adapting and, and where the new gaps are. I have a lot of admiration for how healthcare organizations have really stepped it up and provided leadership and clarity and, uh, and mobilized. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for the industry that we serve this year. I hope they continue to get the recognition they deserve. From my perspective, there are a number of decisions that healthcare organizations have started to make that are serving them. And, and part of my research this year has been really to try to figure out, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a healthcare system, what do, you, what do you need to commit to to be successful today and in the future? Because obviously, there's no guarantees that a year from now, we're not dealing with a similar situation or even just a new adaptation of COVID. So I think there's a recognition that the world has changed and 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 now it's it's up to us to figure out how to chart a course forward. What brought us together today to that kind of spurred the fact that finally get you on the show is started publishing something that actually tries to address the situation head on, what you've termed as revenue resilience. Share with us a little bit what that means, revenue resilience, the concept. This idea really came out of the fact that um, if you roll back the clock to April or May, there was a lot of talk about revenue recovery. And it felt like hospitals in particular were really thinking about how do I get patients back who have moved out their, their elective surgeries, who maybe have stopped coming in for routine treatments of care because of concern about COVID. And there was this obvious gap, and the obvious gap had a big bottom line impact to hospital systems. So this idea of, of revenue recovery um, was popular, but it, but it felt a little short-sighted. And so myself and two other colleagues, one from the Chartist Group, which is kind of thought leaders in, in operational and kind of system-level design for healthcare systems, as well as a Salesforce, so we get kind of a, a clinician who is helping to think about how information between patients and, and hospitals gets exchanged efficiently. The three of us 
really came together because we felt like we were seeing the same, the same short-sightedness out of hospitals. And we were all concerned because it felt like focusing on recovery was short-sighted and didn't actually get to the bigger themes about what's changing. The idea of recovery is we can get back to what was once lost. And I, I think if you look at any of the data about the impact to COVID this year, the latest figures I saw for American Hospital Association, which were just, just through June, were, were about $300 billion. The hospitals have kind of absorbed this massive hit to the financial systems. And yet we are still, as of, uh, as of this podcast, we are still dealing with the fallouts of what, of what COVID looks like. So it's not even over. It felt like recovery was uninformed optimism and an idea that maybe we could kind of get through this. And I, I think when we started this back in May, my colleagues and I had a sense, yeah, this is not something that's going away and it's, and it's not, it's not going to be resolved in 2020. And more importantly, some of the changes and the adaptations that we need to make are going to continue into the next few years. There's really no going back to one, what we once had. We now need to understand what the future looks like and who is going to be successful in that future. You and your colleagues put together what um, you're referring to as the six commitments to revenue resilience. As we were doing this research, um, my colleagues and I put this together. We looked at the problem from an um, operational side. So, so Tom Kisau, who's... Chartist Group really understands the operational um, transformation side. We, we looked at it from a clinical view. So Dr. Sam Matita, who is uh, from the Salesforce side, is a physician executive over there. So he's thinking about how the clinical practices need to adapt. And then I was coming into this with uh, a view around what that, that patient and consumer journey uh, looks like and ex- how expectations were changing there. And so as we started talking about organizations who are, who are finding success, we realized that, that it was less about the underlying uh, electronic medical record technology. It was less about the metro area that they served. It was less about their brand name. And it was actually more about organizational commitments that they seemed to make. So the organizations who seemed posi- well-positioned for success had an ability to be resilient, um, meaning as new information or situations unfolded, they could continue to adapt and figure out new ways to deal with the new situation, as opposed to having something in their in their system break. Um, so we put together these these six commitments. Um, we kind of posted them, and, and we're putting them together in a and a longer form um, white paper with some examples. So the first commitment is really about establishing the capability and expectations for one-to-one patient communications. The important part about making that commitment is movement away from patient communications being PR in nature or news-oriented in nature and starting to make that transition to -to one-to-one patient communications that have some demonstrated clinical intelligence. And so organizations who are, who are committing to 
understanding that what patients and consumers want is is timely information that relates to them. The organizations who've made that commitment and had already invested in systems were, were doing better in the face of having to adapt to the realities of COVID. Now, we've been talking about one-to-one communications as being an important part of how we shift marketing and how digital can interplay with that. But what's interesting to me is this kind of emphasis on uh, using, um, uh, as you put it here, demonstrated by clinical intelligence. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that that feels to some that maybe that's crossing some, maybe the walled garden of HIPAA. The idea of having personalized communications has for years been something like, you know, dear Chris in an email, right? And, exactly. and, and don't you feel so much affinity towards, uh, towards people who, um, you know, who just use your first name in, a, in an email? And the answer is no, of course not. That's, no one falls for that anymore. Exactly. So, so some of this is healthcare was so behind and didn't have the infrastructure and didn't have the ability that it did seem like a step forward. What has happened now, though, and we saw this in the early days of COVID, there were a number of triage tools that had to be released very quickly. And in fact, uh, we did that ourselves. We we helped spin up uh, really some some you know chatbot solutions that were around enough information that a consumer or a patient could decide kind of what to do. What we're seeing is in a world where now everyone's working from home, or I should say now, now people who are employed, who are lucky enough, get to work from home. That now what we're seeing is that shift out of the office means that, you know, I, I as a patient and not necessarily coming in as much as I once did, I, I'm, I'm probably using some augment of telemedicine. Um, so if you look at you know, any healthcare system, they've seen you know, 10 to 100x increase in, in virtual visits, and it's come down a little bit, but it's not going away. So, so now we have this problem of, as a patient, there's so many different ways to communicate with me, uh, and there's so many different channels I need as a patient to be able to rely on something and I can't just rely on logging into my electronic medical record because that doesn't store all the information that's relevant to me. And also if you've used some of these portals at best, you get a message telling you that there is a message, right? Right. And you check that message and the message says, we sent you a message, right? It's just, this, it's, it's so clunky. But if you think about now in a pandemic, people are, are much more aware that they need information that relates to them. And so this idea that, that a hospital can come up with something to say, respond timely, publish it the same day, have it seem relevant, like that's already a stretch. So, so now we just need to change our model. We need, we need to rethink what patient communication is and, and move away from its PR about the hospital or what you need to know. And now it's something that has some clinical intelligence that, you know, to your point about HIPAA, clinical intelligence doesn't mean I am using information without your permission. So that would be a violation. Uh, But there are are a variety of ways that patients can start to indicate what their interests are. So many healthcare organizations have newsletter about diabetes, for example, you know, and that's kind of general content that has a little bit of knowledge. 
But the really useful stuff that patients wish they had this year, you know, boils down to your physician office is closed. Here's what you should do. Here's how your physician is going to look at your information and and a piece of communication that actually relates to me and my care. And and now that, you know, healthcare systems are struggling to turn service lines on and off, they need the ability to communicate with the patient population that's going to be impacted if there is, for example, a COVID outbreak at a particular location and we need to reroute people to another location. You know, when we talk about clinical intelligence, it's not at the level of, um, you know, your blood work came back and we've noticed something about it and we're using advanced AI. That's great. We can get there. But, but right now, it's, it, it's just the logistics of getting the right message to the right person at the right time is so complicated. And, and the idea that, again, you know, hospital system is going to attach a junior PR person to turn the crank on uh, mass communication, that's that's just not going to cut it given the complexity and the specific specificity of, of care that uh, any patient receives now. It makes total sense as you're describing that. And yeah, I do, I do get the fact that we don't want to uh, make our personalized communications hyper-personalized, like you said, right? Not about your BMI or your blood work or things like that. I think that there is a role for that. And that is, you know, when you're talking with directly with your care provider through the patient portal, although there is, as you mentioned, a lot to be desired about that flow, so to speak. But when you're, when you're discussing about, you know, the sort of the, um, the, the various changes that we're going to be undergoing and we're about to hit the second, you know, what they, they're predicting to be a very bad time here in fall and winter when we have flu and COVID together. There's not widespread spread vaccine distribution. They probably won't be until, you know, mid next year. This becomes very important to be able to communicate about if they ha- we have to cancel things or reschedule or those sorts of things. And that's really what you're getting at then, right? Yeah, I, there is a... a- a shift now towards that that patient physician relationship and how these tools can help support it. And there was so much resistance because we thought no physician's ever gonna check an email. You know, no physician's gonna want to communicate virtually with their patients. And I think now seeing how quickly physicians and systems have adapted, it's now even more important to have systems that allow for efficient communication between patients and and physicians that can't be locked up in the EMR anymore. It just, it just doesn't work. And some of that communication, you know, as you said, is is more about where can I receive care? What can I do? How can I manage things? Um, We just need to make it easier on the, on the patients. I mean, some of this is, missional for organic for hospitals this is kind of a hidden the hidden stress behind a lot of the patient experience and if you think we we can put so much into a new facility or training people to be polite to noticing when people are lost in facilities like there was all this emphasis on that real world experience and there's this pretty big gap for most providers in just reducing the amount of logistical burden on patients. Like if you think about any patient experience, generally it's stressful. Uh, When you're stressed, you don't retain information terribly well. And so anything that we can do to help 
get that patient to the next best action, that's really what we're talking about. So if you can reduce the number of choices I need to make or the amount of information I need to go research, if you can reduce the amount of time that it takes for me to get to the right place, that is becoming incredibly important, you know, especially since the patients have so many other options to receive care. So there's a, a need for the hospitals to do it on, on making their operations more efficient, and there's a parallel if they don't. So this kind of first commitment, the organizations who are able and, have, and who had the capabilities to do more one-to-one personalized communication, and also where, where patients expected it, um, they did well. So it's, this is not just a technology solution. This is really, you have to create enough value that patients won't ignore your email, right? So if our, if our best effort is, dear Chris, you should find out if you have COVID and that's personalized. I mean, obviously we're not, we're not really understanding where, where people are and something about, something about this pandemic has exposed the incredible reliance that patients have on their healthcare systems. And, and I think that that's a phenomenal opportunity for us to, to raise these expectations and, and really demonstrate that we're leaders in this. Let's pivot to another. I mean, there are six total commitments in the series of which I, we recommend, and we'll put links to in the show notes for everybody listening in. But let's pivot to the other uh, commitment that um, that we want to we want to talk about, Paul. The kind of fourth commitment to jump down is really that organizations who have uh, expanded access to all clinical specialties virtually and who deployed a, a clinical operating model that seamlessly wove in kind of virtual and physical care, they were well prepared for this, you know, for, for the situation that we're in. And so this fourth commitment is, is really about not seeing this kind of artificial line or this, the seams of referral patterns in the patient experience. I think because we've, we've worked in the industry, we kind of understand that healthcare systems have a lot of, uh, of strength or, or, or weakness based on the, the patterns of their referrals. And the idea that, you know, primary care doctors are going to maintain relationships with their, their colleagues of specialists. And as a patient of that primary care doctor, I'm going to listen to that doctor about who I should go see. Again, because of this explosion in virtual care, the the model has really changed. You actually refer to this model as uh, the MFA model, right? Medicine from anywhere. Sitting here right now, uh, so I have uh, I, I have a primary care physician. I can see someone in that group virtually. Uh, I can my health insurance provides me an op- another opportunity through a different service to get a virtual visit. And if I wanted to on demand. There's half a dozen apps up there that for, you know, an upfront relatively nominal fee, I could go and get a wellness visit immediately. And if you think that now I have multiple options, when at the beginning of this year, I had mediocre ones at best, this is, you know, if if we're as hospital systems, as hospital systems, if, if we're dependent upon referral patterns for primary care doctors, and now, as a consumer, it's easier for me to get on-demand medicine whenever I want. This idea that my loyalty to the primary care doctor 
is really where it's at, I, I think is eroding. You know, whenever healthcare makes a, a big step forward, the, the game changes a little bit. And I, I think the idea that previously when hospitals were, were developing like centers of excellence a couple decades ago and trying to compete on relative strength of services, you know, hospitals had to adapt and, and pick what they could specialize in. But now it's no longer about, you know, even that individual location or facility, this idea the same way that we're working from home, you know, physicians are, are largely screening from home. And it's surprising how successful it is and how, how much information a physician can get without ever having to be in the room and how willing patients are now to accept that as an experience. The organizations who figured out how to extend this beyond just primary care, which I, which is often thought of, um, you know, as kind of a feeder for more serious issues. I think there's a, a number of studies that have come out now that even on a, on a you know, clinical quality, clinical outcome level, many of the specialties and services that hospitals rely on for really keeping the financial system going, um, screenings and initial initial assessments can be done remotely. That ability to to have those screenings remotely, if you imagine that we're heading back into a season where facilities might be closed again, you know, it, it's going to be an incredible advantage for the hospital systems who really don't see the difference between doing intake in person or, or doing it remotely. So the organizations who've invested in that, when their physical facilities are disrupted again, it, it won't be as dramatic or traumatic as it was previously. And that, that's a real advantage that, um, that's a real commitment that, that healthcare organizations can, can make to ensure that they are, they are resilient through the next several waves of whatever we're facing. What I love about this point is that it's not just saying virtual is the way of the future. It's saying that really you need to mix virtual and in-person care together in a seamless way. And I think that's something that's uh, for a lot of organizations, it's been a challenge for them. Um, so what are your, what's your perspective on that? The first thing is thinking about what a consumer-driven journey looks like. So when we talk about the, the seams of, of healthcare, you know, where where the business model doesn't, doesn't quite line up very well. When patients run into those even small barriers, it does create some friction, right? So I think in my experience, trying to get a referral for a specialist can be a hassle. And, and if I do it and it doesn't quite work out, you know, it's, it, it creates a little bit of, of friction and that friction reduces the likelihood that I'm, successful in seeking treatment. The thing that the thing that we can do is take a step back and understand from a consumer perspective what are the decisions that need to be made along a specific journey and what of those decisions can we make virtual. That's not a mindset that a lot of special specialty or service line leaders have been in because it feels it feels so important in many ways to create that physician patient relationship. I think what clearly uh, consumers are saying is we're, we're willing to build that relationship virtually because that's how I'm living my life. So, you know, this, this huge transition away from uh, office life and, and now like 
you know, using myself as an example, I've been working from home for six months. It is not as important. You know, I've learned how to adapt and develop relationships. And I, I think that's that consumers are a lot more able to develop those relationships now virtually. And organizations, you know, if you think that now the, the you know, the service area is, is not the hospital across the week, you know, across the street, uh, but it can be the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic who will do virtual intake, you, you know, the competition has, has scaled up. So, so again, this kind of big step forward in the ability to service patients means that, you know, any hospital who is, who is worried about new entrants has new entrants. And I think this is a place where Amazon or CVS or any of these other players, it, as they are looking to disrupt uh, pharmacy and the kind of pharmacy business, they will, you know, they, they already started moving into urgent care and other types of services. You know, we should only expect more and better competition for patients' time and attention. So I, I think a lot of this, the old business model is, uh, needs to be reexamined and the organizations who are going to be most successful are the ones who are looking at that. How do we create a seamless experience and how do we start asking, what can we do virtually as opposed to just deciding we can't deliver um, service lines? All six of these commitments are very interesting to read through. And I'm so excited that you uh, published them all. They're all on your the web Proficient website blog, which we'll link to, as, as, as I mentioned, in the show notes so people listening in can dig a little bit deeper. But there may be people that want to reach out to you, Paul, directly and kind of carry this conversation forward. What are some good ways that they could uh, connect with you online? Uh, so all this content really originated on LinkedIn. So you can look, look me up, Paul Griffiths with an S uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, or if you go to the Proficient Blogs, my, my information is there. And um, and certainly, I live my life also on some social media channels, though I don't have the following that Chris Boyer has. So maybe, <laughs> he'll, maybe he'll be kind and retweet me one of these things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I think it's great, Paul. And, you know, um, this is such an important topic. It's very timely, top of mind. The C-suites across the country at health systems are thinking about this right now. So really strongly encourage our listeners to go out to the website to take a look, check the show notes for all of that. And Paul, let's not be a stranger too much. Uh, three years is way too long to get you on the show. Let's Let's make sure that we get you on a little bit more frequently in the future. Sounds good. Okay. Well, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was a great pleasure. All right. Thanks again to Paul for coming on the show. Uh, longtime friend, first time caller. No, I don't. What is it? How's that go? I don't know. Anyway, it was great to have Paul on the show, certainly, and uh, talking about uh, digital, digital's role in revenue resilience and, uh, Really appreciate his time. Quickly, going to touch on a couple of upcoming conferences. We've got Shishmed Connection Bites coming up in October, as well as the Smash Conference coming up in October, and then HCIC at Home in November. So again, uh, you can find links to those in uh, certainly the show notes, our weekly email, the TPS report, etc. cetera, uh, but would love to encourage you to uh, sign up and check out all of those. You don't have to worry about the travel or the hotel. So it's win-win. And we look forward to connecting with you all through these various virtual events. And definitely, if you're attending them, reach out to us and, and let us know and give us your thoughts and let us know what you think about virtual conferences in the future. 
Recommendations. Favorite part of the show. What uh, What do you got today? Reed, I am going to recommend a show that I may be late to the game. It's been out for a while, but I just finally got to watch it this weekend. On Netflix, there's a movie. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a documentary. Maybe it's an investigative piece called The Social Dilemma. You've heard about this, right? I'm sure it's on your queue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Heard about it. I've seen, you know, seen stuff on social, certainly about people that have watched it. It does bring up some of the challenges with social media and how social media was built and technology is being built in such a way where human behavior is becoming the currency of these models. It's a, it's an insightful conversation with some of the the leaders. They talked to a person who, for example, created the like button on Facebook, right? Mm. He was the creator of that. And others that led revenue or monetization efforts for Instagram and others. And they get into kind of the creepy part of social media and where it can be leveraged into some ways that that make us feel uncomfortable. I'll just put it that way. Um, I thought that that part of the the program was actually kind of interesting. And I wish there was more of it. But um, I'm going to be frank. There's some parts of the, the social dilemma that I just did not like because they decided to create a fictional family and try to apply that to their lives. And that was kind of a running storyline between real life interviews with people who are talking about some of the aspects around uh, social media with this fictional storyline of a family and how they're reacting to social media. I really felt felt that part of the show was probably not needed. And I wish they would have spent more time and just call it all in, right, as being a, uh, a documentary or, you know, an investigative piece around social media. But overall, I left the program feeling pretty good about it. So my recommendation, it's a little bit not a strong recommendation, but it's going to be a recommendation that anybody who's involved in digital should watch this if you haven't. So put it up at the top of your queue. There you go. Sounds depressing. I'm just going <laughs> to take your word for it. Uh, no, I, I'm sure we will watch it. I'm sure there is we'll some hope too. There's hope in it. Okay. So. All right. Well, good. 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 I'm going to also recommend uh, a show on Netflix. Actually, you know what? I think it's on Prime now. But in any case, it's not an original or anything like that or a documentary. I want to say I've probably even recommended this before. I can't remember, but I'm going to recommend Mad Men because it takes us back to a simpler time when people smoked indoors. No, I don't know. But it's a great show, great series that is a lot of fun to watch. And just, I, you know, I've, I've just enjoyed it. And so Mad Men, about the advertising industry, if you're late to the party. But it's worth a, uh, a rewatch if, uh, if you've seen it. And certainly if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. I love it. You cannot get enough of Don Draper doing the ad pitches in the, in the conference rooms. So great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us for a little bit. We certainly appreciate the support. You can rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or over maybe if you're streaming on Spotify or Amazon Music. Uh, Certainly tell a friend, tell a colleague about the show. It's still the best way that anyone finds out about us. And uh, we just appreciate all the support. So looking forward to next week. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.